Now, if you're playing the movie on a telephone, you will never in a trillion years experience the film. You'll think you have experienced it, but you'll be <clears throat> cheated. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. Split picks uh, on synesthesia. It, uh, thank you for tuning in to the podcast. There are going to be a few weird elements of today's uh, program. Uh, w- one of which you've p- potentially already noticed if you're a regular listener, which is that I am not Mr. Craig Wright, the usual host. Uh, my name is Jim Hickox. I am another split tooth feller, and I am filling in as Craig is on assignment covering uh, whatever. Whatever moment in culture generation feels the most pressing to you, the listener, in the moment. Uh, th- we have a couple of other changes today. One is that Craig, when he hosts these, is uh, is an incredibly thorough researcher and will uh, watch every film in, in a director's oeuvre and read every related book. And I am uh, a lazy boy and I am, I've done as much research as I deemed necessary, but will be spending most of my time Allowing my guests to take up uh, all of the space and and be smart on my behalf. Uh, my guests today are are we have one really very special guest and one somewhat <laughs> mundane guest. I'll let you guess uh, <laughs> which one's which. Uh, one of whom is is a regular uh, host of of the Synesthesia podcast, um, which he co-hosts with with arguably. The, the least interesting of, of the split two personalities, uh, Mr. Jason <laughs> Michaelich, who's here uh, to to uh, to to say hello to the people. Hello, yeah, I I too am a split tooth feller, which I think is an official designation we're going to be offering. It it comes with no monetary reward, but I think you can redeem it for a bologna sandwich. Yeah, I I, I think only um, in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And our other guest is uh, is Mr. Rob Christopher, a filmmaker who has a film that is that is out playing festivals at the moment. Um, is if is my understanding, or is it also? I guess the Portland screening is not festival related. Is that correct? It's just playing the world. Correct. We finished our festival run. We are now screening here and there in various theaters, and hopefully, we'll be streaming later this year. Oh, that's really exciting! Great. Rob's uh, film that he's that he's just completed and and that will hopefully be streaming later this this year is uh, a, a sort of semi biopic of of Barry Gifford. So let me just introduce the last sort of twist on the on the format, and then we'll swing it into into actually using the format, which is normally on split picks. We uh, we sort of approach some some one's oeuvre, a filmmaker or a band. Uh, or a novelist has Craig ever done a novelist? Um, where w- the two uh, contestants, if you will, each pick uh, one element of that one one out outcropping of of artistic 
boon to the world and defended as the best. And in this particular case, Rob's film deals with Barry Gifford. And instead of looking at all of his books, we're, we're sort of approaching him through the back door of David Lynch films, um, which, which limits us to a pool of two David Lynch films. But if you were going to pick two diametrically opposed David Lynch films to represent the, the, the two ends of the pendulum swing of David Lynch's proclivities, the, the two that we end up with are, are pretty well situated um, on, on the two ends of those pendulum swings. So let's briefly j- just let me know what, what films it is that you're going to be repping, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the Barry Gifford doc, if that's all right. Um, so Rob, do you want to tell us what what film you're talking about and why? Yes, um, this is Rob Christopher once again, and I'm going to be talking about Lost Highway, which is a film that Barry Gifford co-wrote with David Lynch. Um, It's a film that obsessed me when it first came out in 1997. Um, I actually did something I'd never done before, which is I went to see a matinee, and then at the end of the film, I went straight to the box office and bought a ticket to see the next show. (laughs) Um, And then later on in the weekend, I came and saw it a third time. I was really, really obsessed with that movie. Um, So as much as I love Wild at Heart, I think Lost Highway is my number one favorite David Lynch movie. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Uh, And Chase, what what film are you going to be talking about today? Well, my number one favorite David Lynch movie is probably uh, the bit from Inland Empire with the rabbits. But uh, I'm going to be talking today about Wild at Heart, which is a spectacular film. Uh, won the, the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1990. Uh, and it's an adaptation of a novel by... Barry Gifford, the subject of Rob's film. It was the first time Lynch and Gifford uh, had worked together in any capacity. Not that they worked closely together on Wild at Heart, but uh, Lynch was, uh, you know, in communication with Gifford and solicited advice on the script from him and and took criticisms. And I know that that Gifford felt uh, well-treated by the experience, which is why he went on to write with Lynch again. Um, not just Lost Highway, by the way. We could have also done David Lynch's Hotel Room. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that. Which I is, love uh, Hotel Room. Yeah, which I is... is I, I almost suggested doing it, but the, <laughs> the, the Apollo and Dionysus pairing of Wild at Heart and Lost <laughs> Highway was, was too good to pass up. Yeah. But uh, we, we should mention Hotel Room, which was the HBO miniseries that only... Well, it was supposed to be a longer-than-miniseries, but HBO hated it, so they canceled it. <laughs> Uh, it was only three episodes long, and the first and third episode are written by Barry Gifford and directed by Lynch. So I didn't realize that's something that, at all. That, that we should we could you know do a follow up on someday. Yeah, for sure. That, we'll that's compare be, the yeah. first and third episodes of Hotel Room. <laughs> um, but I, I I like your suggestion, Jim. That first uh, before we get into these movies, we maybe kick it back over to Rob to get. Um, not only a, a little discussion about his film, which is really lovely. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Rob, I, I, I got to watch the screener you sent, and it, it really, I, I could have a lot to say about that film too. <laughs> Roy's world. Thank you. Um, Thank but you. also just given giving our audience a, a notion of who Barry Gifford is, because I'm sure Split Tooth Heads 
you know, all four of them are pretty familiar with David Lynch, but I, I imagine they're less familiar because uh, our website caters almost exclusively to functional illiterates. Uh, they're they're probably not <laughs> familiar with Barry Gifford being as he works mostly in the written word. Yeah. So, Rob, give us give us some insights on uh, on the linchpin of our episode, if I if I may. Well, uh, my film is called uh, Roy's World, Barry Gifford, Chicago. And Barry is a person that I first got to meet because I interviewed him for a blog that I was writing for. Okay. And we just sort of stayed in touch and got a little friendlier. Uh, What really interested me about Barry's work was that you know, he's the author of Wild at Heart and co-wrote Lost Highway, which are these very brutal, violent kind of um, forces of nature. But he has this whole other side to his writing, which is what I am exploring in Roy's world, which are these sort of um, almost tender stories about his childhood growing up in the 50s, mostly in Chicago, but also in places like uh, Havana and Key West and New Orleans. And uh, it was just a beautiful thing to realize that uh, this brilliant writer had these two sides of his writing. And uh, I had always wanted to make a film about Chicago, but didn't really have a way into that massive subject. Uh, at some point, I realized that these Roy stories were the perfect lens to look at a part of a history that I felt was sort of under-examined, which is the 50s in Chicago. And I wanted to take a sort of impressionistic approach to the subject. Um, I started out with what I didn't want the film to be. I didn't want there to be any talking heads. Sure. I didn't want there to be the usual parade of celebrity endorsements where it's, you know, you get a bunch of people lined up and they just talk about how great somebody is and that's great, but it doesn't really tell you anything about why you should be interested in their work. Sure, right? absolutely. So uh, my, my uh, final film is a sort of uh, impressionistic way into that time and place, which simultaneously examines uh, Barry's roots as a writer and also um, this character called Roy, which is a sort of autobiographical figure, which he's been writing about for more than 40 years now. <laughs> So I uh, mixed in some archival footage and some animation and an original jazz score. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of it. And uh, I'm really happy to be talking about it today on your podcast. Thank you. It, it is overall an incredibly jazzy movie. I feel like the, the score <laughs> certainly, but, but there's even sort of a jazzy playfulness in the visuals and the way the stories are being presented. It felt, it feels, the whole movie feels to me like jazz. I don't know if that was a, a goal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree that the images feel like they're, they're reacting to, because there, there's, you know, interview with Barry Gifford yeah. on the, in the soundtrack. And then also, uh, various actors reading the Roy stories and the the images always feel like they are um, not just illustrating what's being said, but are sort of improvising with them the way that like a jazz player would listen yeah. and, and play back. Yeah, uh, my, my two big um, touchstones for this movie were David Lynch, obviously, sure. and also Terrence Davies. Mm-hmm. Um, who did this beautiful film about his childhood in Liverpool called Of Time in the City. Sure. 
And when I saw that, I realized that that was a sort of template I could use, which would be a sort of more personal way of exploring that. But yes, it's very much a jazz movie because the thing I sort of realized as I was putting it together is that, you know, if the story says um, there's a guy sitting on a park bench, the last thing you really want to have on screen is a guy sitting on a park <laughs> sure, bench. Because we all know. Because the story is already doing that work. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you have to find some other image or some other sound or something else that's going to sort of rhyme with Barry's language and sort of create a third thing, a beautiful third thing that couldn't exist, uh, you know, without the mashup of those other elements. Yeah, that's great. And it was just a just a constant uh, weaving in and out and improvisation of finding things that would sort of flow that way. And you also do a really lovely job. I think this is Jason sort of said this already, but you do a really lovely job of of going back and forth between the Barry Gifford interview segments and the and the pieces of his story. Some I think some read by him, right? But mostly read by uh, actors. Um, it's it's and it's and it's also. I mean, I might be a little confused about when he's telling stories and when not, right? Because there's there's so much clearly parallel between him and this Roy character, they do really sort of synthesize together in a lovely way where he'll tell a story or, or someone will read a story about Roy and then he'll tell you a story about his mother. And you're like, oh, these are... The, 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 the story he's just told us is fundamentally another Roy story or that Roy story is fundamentally just another piece of his life, right? They, they really synthesize in a lovely way. You, uh, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, my, I mean, Barry's writing really does dance around the truth yeah. uh, as far as like what actually happened. But as he, as I have him quoting in the film, you know, fiction has a very simple definition. It means that you made it yeah. up. So my, so my goal was to sort of um, intertwine, quote unquote, fiction and fact so much that at a certain point as a viewer, you really stop caring about like what actually happened and what's just fiction. It's just this, uh, it's its own thing. Yeah. It's good stories. Good stories is good stories. Right. Well, it strikes me not that I necessarily want to transition this hard and fast into the main (laughs) meat of the podcast, but that strikes me as a a really good working definition of um, what Gifford and Lynch's collaborations uh, bring out in the not just in the films that he did with Lynch, but I think in the films that follow, um, I feel yeah. you know I'm, I'm certainly not the first to to note that adapting Gifford and then working with Gifford had a seemed to have had a massive impact on Lynch, and I think that can be described in a lot of ways. But one primary way is that it prompted and, and I think inspired a greater blending of fact and fiction or a greater, not necessarily even blending of realities, but just a, a in, in Wild at Heart and then even more so in Lost Highway and the films that follow, uh, I think you see uh, Gifford and Lynch and then Lynch uh, him on his own uh, really abandoning the notion of a base reality. Uh, yeah. Like there, there's not a true world and a fantasy world anymore by the time you get through Lost Highway into Mulholland Driver Inland Empire there's just the there's just the internal world the world yeah, of the, the film. it's the it's the yeah. world of the film the world of the characters you can say like oh all of these things are happening in the character's mind but like 
the real world is also all happening in our minds. Like that's the only place it happens. And yeah. so the, the distinction between subjective and objective gets more and more erased, um, which I, I think has an interesting rhyme with what you're talking about, Rob, in, in your adaptation of the Chicago stories. Mm. Um, as a way of building off what you were just saying, um, I thought um, that I would read a little bit from this David Lynch interview that um, he did in Chris Rodley's excellent book called Lynch on Lynch, Great. which um, goes through all of his films up to Lost Highway. Jason is also and holding so, a copy of the same book. Oh, awesome. <laughs> You're both so prepared. Oh, you have, cool. the, you have the, the sweet vintage edition. I have the older yeah. edition. Will, will yeah. you do it in your best David Lynch voice? I'm kidding. You know. <laughs> Barry actually does an amazing does David he? Lynch impersonation. Oh. Yeah. Too bad we couldn't have <laughs> Anyway, um, so Chris Rodley asks, um, what was it about Gifford's work that attracted you? And I love his, I love Lynch's answer because it really is what attracted me to Barry's work as well. So he says, um, I like a certain sensibility that Barry has about things. He understands a world that I like and he likes as well. And I really like the characters he writes about. I like what they say. They've got a kind of coolness and a kind of hipness to them. There's an honesty there, too. And Barry is also a pretty sparse writer, so there's lots of room for me to go off. His work suggests so much. A lot of the things I had in Wild at Heart, I'm sure Barry didn't have in mind, but the ideas were there for me as seeds. And I love that idea of the seeds, because when I was adapting um, Barry's stories for my yeah. film, I found that I could, you know, take a little section here and a little section there and shuffle them around and sort of create a, a brand new flow of things for my own movie. And it's all because, you know, the, the seeds are there in Barry's work and they encourage that kind of openness of the imagination. Yeah. I was, I, I have not read Barry Gifford. I'm I'm primarily familiar with him through these these Lynch uh, films, and it was fascinating for me to. I rewatched the Lynches first just to get in the headset before watching your film, um, and and having those two Lynch films playing around in my head while listening to th- the cadence of his prose and the and the sort of way he uses language and the there's a very um, it's 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 very like immediate and direct, uh, and it's it's it wasn't what I would have guessed had I just watched Wild at Heart and been like, who wrote this? Right? I would have guessed it would be something more flamboyant. Um, but it's a very uh, earthy uh, writing style he has, and it it really makes me it it makes me want to read the Sailor and Lula stories much more than just watching David Lynch's film would make me want to read those stories. It gives you a lot of room in your head to invent the world that you're reading about, which is really uh, striking and beautiful. I mean, just to beat the jazz metaphor to death, um, which, you know, I mean, it's there, Chicago jazz, you can't escape it. Sure. Um, But the Barry Gifford's um, sense of space and silence and timing like what you're talking about that giving you room you know it is that cliche of the notes you don't play in jazz right it's it's the it's where you leave space for 
other players or the listener to to move in imaginatively, uh, and it's something that I know at least a little bit uh, from you know what I've read the that Gifford's very aware of in what he's doing. Like it's not just it's not this in, instinctual thing. It's something that he's thinking about. Uh, I know in terms of talking about making hotel room uh, with Lynch, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, reading up on interviews about that. Um, I guess the third episode they had to make very quickly because another script fell through. Or actually, I think what it was is that David Mamet wrote one and they rejected it, <laughs> which is that, that in and of itself. Yeah, is, that's is, correct. Here we go. We've got Chicago and we've got, you know, <laughs> yes, correct decisions. Um, yeah, Barry Gifford and David Mamet is like the dueling, like good and evil of Chicago sparse right. writers. Um, but uh, they basically needed it like overnight written. And so Barry sent the script and it was 17 pages long for a half hour show. And I think one of the producers was like, Barry, this is only 17 pages. Like, that's not a show. And Barry goes, yeah, but I know how David shoots. He's going to make it a half an hour. (laughs) And he did. And it like, that's exactly, he left the space for the other player um, in just that way. Barry has recounted a great anecdote about that last episode, Blackout it's called. And apparently um, David and Monty Montgomery, the producer went to him and said, uh, we'd like you to write a story that our grandmothers can watch. <laughs> and so Barry said, okay, I'll write the story. You tie up your grandmothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really beautiful. <laughs> let's, uh, let's swing a little bit into the, into the Lynch products. And um, if we, if we keep dipping into Roy's world, I'm not, I'm not sad about that. Uh, but yeah. let's let's shift <laughs> focus a little me. bit. <laughs> let's shift focus a little bit uh, to the to the uh, to the Lynchian offerings for a moment. Um, the the thing that that sort of feels like a weird kernel to me that uh, that sort of ties them together, and you may may have more insight on this, Rob. Um, it's 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 my understanding that uh, that Lost Highway came out of a passage also in in Wild at Heart. Is that is that right? Do you do you know that? It actually came out of another novel that Barry okay. wrote called Night People, okay. which David Lynch loved and optioned and um, in his own, you know, Lynchian way, he honed in on exactly two things from the book that he liked. <laughs> One of them was just the phrase Lost Highway, which suggested <laughs> all these beautiful possibilities to him. Sure. And the other one was, I believe a character in the book says something like, we can really out-ugly them some bitches, can't we? Okay. <laughs> and so that phrase, that line of dialogue was lifted for the film Last Highway, which Robert Loja says at the very uh-huh. end, right before his head is blown off, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that was the kernel. And um, That's assen- amazing. Essentially, they sort of, uh, in true jazz fashion, Lynch and uh, Barry just hung out and, and riffed on each other's ideas and took it from there. What a fun room that must have been to be in. <laughs> um, well, t- tell us a little bit about about Lost Highway. What is it? What is it about that film in particular that speaks to you? Well, when I, you know, I, I, I just talked about how the fact that I saw it twice in a row, like I literally went from one screening directly into the yeah. next film. 
which I think is really an appropriate way to see Lost Highway because it really is a cinematic Mobius strip. Sure. The beginning is the end. Yeah. The phrase Dick Laurent Very is dead. <laughs> exactly. The phrase Dick Laurent is dead uh, appears in the beginning and then reappears at the end. And it's only at the end that you realize what is tying all these things together. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful world where, yeah, there is no, as Jason mentioned, there is no base reality. I really think that it's uh, sort of a diptych with uh, Mulholland Drive. I think that sure. Last Highway is the male version of the story and, and Mulholland Drive is the female version of the story. Um, it has, you know, as opposed to Wild at Heart, which is sort of maximalist filmmaking, you know, yeah. the most bloody, violent, <laughs> loud, colorful, cartoonish things. Lost Highway is amazingly austere and yeah. it's all about darkness and shades of darkness and like, you know, things disappearing into shadows. And uh, there's a one of my favorite shots from the film is just this little puff of smoke that's sort of slowly drifting from somewhere off screen. You don't know what that means or where it's coming from, but it's just amazing. But it's beautiful. Exactly. They do a, they do a really lovely thing in shooting that film where uh, if, if you were to divide your screen into, say, five slices, uh, five horizontal slices, um, there will be things framed in the outer two slices and then just absolute blackness in the middle, <laughs> right? Where it's just there's only things on the periphery and just and just nothing, some kind of a void, sometimes a literal darkness, sometimes just kind of a void. Uh, or there's a shot of like a staticky TV at one point. Um, they, he loves putting things just on your periphery in that film. Yeah, you spend the whole movie like catching things out of the corner of your eye is yeah. what it feels like. Even when they're center frame, it's how it feels, yeah. right? Like you're, things you're like, don't did quite I see a thing, man? cohere yeah. mentally. You know, it, it's it's really, really a wonderful film. I can't fault Rob for preferring <laughs> it. I mean, one of the things I love about the film is there are several moments in the film where what you're looking at seems clear enough but you still don't know what you're looking at. Like, what am yeah. I actually seeing? Yeah. Like the scene at the very end of the film where Bill Pullman is undergoing some sort of weird metamorphosis or transformation, or maybe he's exploding. You're not quite sure it, what it in is. In the car at the very end. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah you're like, is he turning into another guy? Is he just screaming? Is he melting? <laughs> <laughs> I am unsure. I... I, I also have a, a slightly weird uh, relationship with Lost Highway in that it, it is the first Lynch product I, I was familiar with. This was when Ooh. I was in high school. You know, my friends and I would this, you know, it was, it was sort of the, like the last big era of the video store. Right. And we would go and just kind of rent things uh, and hope to find something fun. Um, and that, you know, it was it was it, we, we found like, I, I don't know, Fargo and uh, at Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, as embarrassing as it is to say, and uh, Man Bites Dog. You know, it was, it was it was like we were getting sort of a crapshoot of if one of us found something and was like, oh, this movie is trying something, we would show it to each other because it's, you know, when you're sort of growing up in a galaxy island world, you're like just seeing whatever movies there are. Whenever you can find something that's doing something that isn't just what all the other movies are doing it's it's really exciting right it's like a shock of electricity to your it's 15 year old brain and i think my friend justin found found lost highway 
uh, and I had no context for anything else David Lynch. Uh, and we we sat down and watched it. And I think we also watched it six times over a weekend, right? Because we were wow. like, not only is this movie doing, doing th- like trying something and like having a flavor, right? Like something like those Guy Ritchie movies were exciting because they had a style. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though they're still kind of just the shape of a normal Hollywood movie. But, but Lost Highway is, is, first of all, it is it is a loop, right? But also it's just, it's not communicating in the way that films typically communicate. And it was it was so outlandish for my young brain. Uh, I, I, I was like, I have no um, touch point. When, when I was just rewatching it uh, the other day, I was I was struck by how slow the heartbeat of the film is. It's I, I, I don't think I can think of another narrative film that moves at the same pace. There are some others that are very slow, right? Uh, like the Limits of Control or something. Uh, probably some other charmouche. Um, but I can't think of anything that strikes me as just being just it's it, it's not even like a lot of films that are very slow set up a slow pace in order to later break out of that and really freak you out by getting fast or or crazy right and and lost highway really never strays from it's it starts a heart <laughs> a heartbeat that's that's you know the resting heartbeat of a athlete in their prime and then just never moves uh, and it's it's the magic of david lynch that despite this incredibly deliberate pace there's still this sort of dread and tension in every single yeah. moment of the film that never lets up. Yeah. Yeah. You're never like, Oh boy, this is a slog, right? You're, you're, it's, it's sort of eating you the whole time that you're watching it. Yeah. Um, Jason counter pitch me. Talk to me about wild at heart. All right. So <clears throat> wild cherry um, at heart, the, the, <laughs> the Pepsi story. <laughs> Uh, wild at heart and zero calories. No, um, <laughs> for me, I mean, these conversations always come down to like where we encountered things or sure. how we, how we, you know, came into these worlds and they end up being these little, almost telling more about ourselves and about the films. But I don't mean that in a negative way because it's, it's the only way I know how to relate to these things. Sure. Yeah. I, I think when I first saw wild at heart, I also, like you with Lost Highway, Jim, I didn't really have a notion of Lynch. I might have seen some Twin Peaks at that point, but I also might not have. Sure. It, it was so long ago. I had a I had a notion that Nicolas Cage was an interesting actor. And I think at the time, I mean, when I saw it pretty young, I think I knew Laura Dern. I liked Laura Dern from Jurassic Park and sure. Nicolas Cage from Face Off. And sure. then I was like, I'm going to watch this movie. <laughs> and I don't think at that point in time I'd ever seen anything quite so vibrant and at the same time earthy and disturbing. Yeah. I, I feel like that film actually probably started my my interest in Lynch because I saw it around the time that I was starting to understand like oh there are different directors that make different things and sure. you know that matters yeah. <laughs> and with something like that you just can't mistake it right like this is an experience that somebody was in some I won't say control of but somebody was 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 pushing forth. Uh, from themselves sure. um, in, in a way that, that other films just didn't sure. function. Someone else was not making Wild at Heart. 
Only one person could have made Wild at Heart, and it was Dan Yes, Lynch. exactly, exactly. And it only could have been made, I think, you know, obviously from Barry Gifford's novel. Yeah. So it, it, it is interesting in that it is this, you know, if you want to be a tourist about it, it is very much a Lynch film, but I think you do a disservice to it. Not that anybody here is doing that, but one who only talked about it as a Lynch film would be doing a disservice to, to Gifford as... Uh, a co-generator of that of the world of the film, you know, fully generated in the novel and then recreated again in the film. Because um, a lot of the the weirdest, most eccentric ideas are straight from the book. I oh, mean, yeah. that's that's what surprised me. It's like, <laughs> well, it's a David Lynch film, so of course there's going to be some weird stuff, right? Yeah. But then I read yeah. the book, and it's like, wow, it's all from the book, basically. I'm making a sandwich. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it's the the thing that brings me back to Wild at Heart. Um, aside from Nick Cage and Laura Dern being two of my favorite performers sure. of all time, it is the movie is heavily stocked with people who are delightful to watch on screen. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it every is, single role. Yeah, every single, which is largely true of Lost Highway too. But Wild at Heart certainly feels more. People will show up for one scene and be a phenomenal presence you know yeah like freddie francis i mean just amazing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what is going on in that scene you never know but you don't Who knows? care <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> well lost highway has wonderful actors i mean everything yeah. lynch does has wonderful actors he sure. you know casts very well but when you look at the at the lineup it's people like bill pullman and patricia yeah. arquette and um oh god robert blake Sorry, I yeah. was yeah, blanking on, on his name for a second. But, but these are all people who, at least in that film, and I would argue certainly in the case of, of Pullman and Arquette in other films, they don't command presence in the way that some performers sure. do. They're, like a they're Nick Cage. often. You can't not look at Nick Cage if he's on screen. Yeah. Bill Pullman can blend into a normal movie. Exactly. Like if you think of Bill Pullman's like biggest moment in pop culture, his like speech in Independence Day. Sure. And it, it still feels like that energy is coming. This is not meant as a knock on Bill Pullman, who I like a lot, but it doesn't feel like that energy is coming from Pullman. It feels like it's coming from the film and sure. he's the conduit for it. Yes. Um, yes. You know, he, he, they become a part of the tapestry. Yeah. Whereas in Wild at Heart is not the same kind of tapestry where everything fits in. It's more of a setting where then people can pop out of it and you get Nick Cage in his snakeskin jacket and you get Laura Dern and her, you know, shifts of consciousness from internal to external, from, uh, you know, interpersonal to meditative and uh, all around. You get Willem Dafoe just, you know, dominating the characters and the audience at the same time, just completely taking over. Um, it, it's a different kind of experience. I hadn't seen Wild at Heart in, in, in years and years and years. And I, I had like, actually, I think I remembered all of it. But going into it, I was like, I only remember like three things. And one of them is how juicy Willem Dafoe's. Who, if anyone with any acting aspirations, you're like, really all I want to do is play. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Bobby, Bobby Peru. Peru. Bobby Peru. What like the the best acting role? It's all tiny about those mustache teeth. and his gross gross teeth. teeth. <laughs> oh, the oh. dental appliance. Uh, yeah, you know? and then he shows up, and you're like, ah! He does. He absolutely. He like steps all over you and all the other actors. Sorry, you were on. A, you were on a flow. Jump back into your flow. 
Oh no, I, I was just going to say that that it's they are. I mean, I you know I used the the sort of cliched Apollo and Dionysus before, but there is this. It's sort of interesting because I I think I can set the two up as that kind of dichotomy, but I could also switch at a given moment which one is which, because as Rob was saying, um, there's a an austereness to Lost Highway. Yeah. There there's a a lower key quality to it that you could sort of argue is more restrained or controlled as opposed to wild at heart just sort of bursting out all over at, at, at every point yeah. um, in the performances in the color in the music um, at the same time i think wild at heart is this much more positive optimistic vision despite its incredibly dark and violent tendencies there's a a core of the film that at heart it's a romance yeah yeah, yeah. right it is and, it's a romantic it's, comedy on some yeah some level love and hell is how lynch describes it. yes exactly exactly love and hell and it, it's heart is beating so hard that it's just pushing everything out at you whereas lost highway it's you said that it had that slow heartbeat that's sort of just it feels it's that feeling when you've just woken up and the chemicals in your body that keep you still at night haven't worn off yeah. yet and you want to move your legs and arms and they're not quite responding yet it feels like that for the entire film yeah. mm. until that end that you were talking about where bill pullman's screaming and and pumping and that's when it feels like that that energy that the film has carried through all the way to the end is starting to break apart and yeah. just as it breaks apart it ends and starts again yeah yeah it restarts it's like trying to it's like you're it's seizing up and it has to reboot because it can't get past that point um whereas wild at heart brings you to this crescendo and you know very clearly fantasy crescendo right it's aware that like it's constructing a fantasy space and that's the only way that it can imagine a happy ending for these characters it ends with love me tender love me tender and and glinda the good witch right like it's we're we're off to see the wizard. Yeah. It's it it, it mm. ends it ends going to Oz, uh, which for a film that's the most to reference Wizard of Oz. You know, maybe one of the greatest fantasy films of all time is a very conscious choice to to take your film and steer it towards this yeah. uh, this <clears throat> wish fulfillment kind of space, yeah. which is something that they absolutely refuse to do in Lost Highway. Despite, which is not to say that it's absolutely one way or the other. One's optimistic, one's pessimistic, but the, the overall trend lines well, flow in different directions. Wild at Heart is sort of, it is all the way at the top, and even when its content is is pulling down, it won't, it won't be pulled down, right? Whereas Lost Highway is sort of lying, lurking on the bottom of the ocean, and no matter how much the stuff in the film is trying to pull it up, it's not going to leave, right? They're both they yeah. both have a very hard line of what uh, of where they want to be, and things are going to happen that are going to try to make them move, and they are not uh, they're not going to. Jason, I um I want to jump back real quick. I've been getting uh, a f a flurry of tweets from from our audience listening live. Uh, telling me that they uh, they don't know exactly what the Apollo Dionysus uh, uh, connection is, <laughs> and they would like so could, for the for for all the dum dums at home uh, and not me. Could you explain what that is? Uh, well, I basically the the two Greek gods Apollo is uh, you know 
associated with light and order and triumph. Uh, and Dionysus is the earthy god of wine and revelry and debauchery. Uh, and so usually if you say there's like an, uh, an Apollo and Dionysus split between something, the one thing is sort of the, the straight man and the other one is the messy lunatic, right? It's Abbott and Costello. Abbott is the Apollo, and Costello is Dionysus. He's, you know, he's engorged on life, whereas, you know, the Bud is standing there going, Argh. you know. But, uh, but obviously, with any metaphor, especially one that's been around for so long and, and been so abused, you can tweak how you want to interpret it. So do you want to say that Wild at Heart is the Apollo because it has this brighter, more optimistic uh, view of things. It's also more traditionally narratively constructed, sort of as as wild at heart as it is. Uh, it it follows, you know, a narrative that you that anybody sure. can watch from beginning to end, and at least it has see a beginning, what the story was, that, whether right. they understand it or not. Mm -hmm. Whereas Lost Highway is looping around on itself, and you can get lost in it. Um, so then the question is, is Lost Highway's austereness, you know, pulling it in that direction, and Wild at Heart's revelry pulling it towards Dionysus or not? I mean, ultimately, it's a silly question. Sure. Uh, but, you know, just for the sake of putting them up against each other, it is interesting that there's such, uh, I think, stark distinctions between them. Mm. But, of course, they, they slip back and forth into each other. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. but yeah, my, I, I, I could say for a quick transition back to Rob, much like in Lost Highway, Bill Pullman and Baltazar Getty are slipping back and forth into each other. And you don't quite know which is going to be the more coherent idea of what's real or what's happening or, or what's resonant with what the film is trying to tell you. Uh, I, I, I like, I really like the, the, this notion you explored because one, one way that I uh, see the two films is that wild at heart is about taking responsibility, facing up to your consequences, sure. because that's the only way that love can succeed is when you are honest with each other about where you've come from and where you're going. And I think that's why the happy ending is earned. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas lost highway is about the consequences of not facing up to your behavior. Like when you know that there's some really bad stuff going on, but you don't want to look at it, you don't want to deal with it. And it's just always simmering there in the background, ready to explode when you least expect it. And so you know, Last Highway is about um, at least one reading of the film is that uh, Bill Pullman's um, jealousy and rage is just something he can't deal with. So he creates or is transformed into this other person, sure. this sort of fantasy person, you know, Balthazar Getty, who's like young and incredibly good looking and he's very sexy and he works at a, you know, car shop or whatever. But even in this sort of fantasy version, he can't escape what actually happened, all the bad stuff that he, you know, quote unquote, left behind. And finally, it gets the better of him. And maybe the universe explodes at the end because he hasn't taken responsibility for his feelings or his behavior. Yeah, I, I like I really like that um, way of describing both films um, and one of the one of the other interesting ways of, of looking at the relationship between the two of them 
uh, is, I think, of course, chronologically, as something that uh, I, I think it was right to start with Rob on Lost Highway on this episode because I don't want to just think of them as sort of a teleological trajectory, you know, going sure. from one to the other. But it is also worth noting that I, I think starting with Lost Highway, Lynch's films become more and more marked by a a feeling of a lack of control and understanding, yeah. uh, not not just on the part of the audience, but on the parts of the character. Uh, yeah. Wild yeah. at Heart has yeah. a lot of difficulties for the characters to get through and a lot of strangeness and a lot of conflict, but they have a grasp on things. You know, they, they can yeah. reach out and change things and understand for the most part what it is they're touching and feeling and pushing against. And with Lost Highway, with Mulholland Drive, with Inland Empire, that, <laughs> that sense that something is wrong, but that you just keep not being able to fully define what it is, that it's almost coming into mm. view, but then it fades back out again before you're able to fully grasp it, it becomes more and more dominant. And I think that yeah. is, in large part, uh, I read it in large part as Lynch's reaction to the world, because I don't know about you, but I feel to me, the older I get, the more that's how the world feels. Sure. And maybe that's always how it's felt getting older. Um, but, you know, it, recency bias or not, it's hard to not think that right now in our world, things are getting and, and have been for the last 20, 30 years, more and more chaotic, more and more um drenched in sort of hidden miseries or confused alienations and that we all know things are going wrong but we can't quite reach out and grasp what to do about it or where to touch and you see that you know in our world you see the result of that is people lashing out at their you know fellow human beings and trying sure. to find people to blame and trying to you know say oh it's this group oh it's that kind of person oh i'm you know that kind of thing but it's because we all feel that pain and we don't know how to make it stop and in lost highway that's you know the the strangeness of robert blake's character you know bill pullman can see him yeah. But it's never quite clear that he's the cause of this. It's never clear sure. that he's like doing it to him. He's some sort of manifestation of this feeling. But would it be solved if he could just get his hands on Robert Blake? I don't know. Would, would anything solve any? Like what, what the actual concrete problem is keeps slipping away and you're just left with the feeling of it. It's also, yeah. sorry, just to push that idea one notch further. There's also, as an audience member, right, he... Because it is easy to be like, ooh, this character is in this space where uh, Robert Blake is a thing. Um, and if if he interacted with Robert Blake and Robert Blake was like, ah, I'm mysterious and I never blink and I don't have eyebrows, um, th then you could be like, oh, he's some element of this chaos, some element of this darkness that is manifested in what looks like a man. But we, he, Lynch also gives us moments with Robert, like, just being a guy at a party, yeah. right? Like, just hanging out with other people. They talk him about a, a little bit. He's So even in the audience, you're sort of thrust into the space where you're like, oh, this guy is some kind of supernatural entity. And then, oh, also, he's just a guy. Mm -hmm. So so. Even as an audience member, you're like, I, this world is is slipping through my fingertips, and I can't quite pull together what is happening. Yeah. 
Well, you know, really the only the only way, I mean, I, I this is something I, I took me a while to learn. I think it takes every Lynch viewer a while to learn. And that is the only way you're ever going to truly enjoy a David Lynch movie is if you give over that control. Sure. You stop you stop obsessing about what does this mean and what am I looking at? You just have to let it wash over you and hopefully you will understand it in a psychological way, which I think is what Lynch is really interested in as far as filmmaking goes. And and I think that uh, Jason sort of alluded to this earlier, but I think that it is a thing that this, this duology of, of works with Barry Gifford is, is sort of, gave him a real kick on because because this is uh, these are relatively early films both of them in his in his career right he had done of of the big ones right he'd done blue velvet before this and and twin peaks and slash firewalk with me is in between them i think right yeah um but no other really sort of major i maybe the elephant man is down there somewhere um down down there in the filmography um but he hadn't really done any of the other big films you think of when you think of david lynch films that that i'm aware of um aside from Eraserhead. Aside from a race, right? Which in many ways is just a different kind of thing altogether. Eraserhead is, is on many levels, I'm sorry to the big Lynch heads, a a student film. Um, And and, and like not really operating in the same way that a lot. But if you look at like Blue Velvet or or, or Twin Peaks, right? They they are, they are, and and I think you said this earlier, Jason, they're they're, they're based in a world where some things are weird, right? Um, And it is, it is, and, and it seems like David Lynch is reacting to that sort of idea in the Sailor and Lula things, right? Where he's like, oh, this is like these people who are burning so hot, but in a world where everyone is burning so hot and things are kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what attracts him to that. And then and then working on that, he uh, somehow in that interim, working with Barry Gifford, right? They they, they come together and they, they take a swing at Lost Highway based on two phrases, as you said. Uh, and the thing they come up with is fully it fully synthesizes this idea of of you're just in I, and people try to read a lot of his movies as like a dream state right you're you're in a space where it is a blend of of real and surreal it, it is it is a fully hyper real space mm. where you 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 don't know if things are in in the movie's world or if they're in the character's head and and ultimately it doesn't matter and that is a that is a theme that that starting with with, with that film, he he really just dives headlong into right deeper and deeper, sort of throughout the rest of his career. But it does it does feel like sort of a hallmark of Lynchian filmmaking, but also a thing that feels like it largely to, to me feels like it largely comes out of of this collaboration in some way, right? It's it's definitely it feels like it starts with Lost Highway. I I, I would argue that there are a few segments, at least in Fire Walk with Me, that really do approach that sort of. Uh, where am I? Absolutely, if you will. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that's a phrase, but <laughs> it is when now. you finally get to when you finally get to Lost Highway, you really do get the pure, yeah. uncut, you know, <laughs> version of of what an entire movie like that yeah. is like, and that's that's what was so exciting to me when I first saw it. It was like, oh my god, I want to live in this yeah. world. I don't, I don't care but... that I don't understand <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't literally want to like live on Deep Dell Drive or you know whatever in the the uh, the the porn kingpins mansion. But it's fun to visit for two yeah. hours. Yeah. At any oh time. no, absolutely. No, I, I know exactly what you mean, Rob. Yeah, it's it's like it's like standing in a heavy fog, right? It's beautiful. 
I'm really, I'm really excited to see this new 4K restoration, you know, which is slowly rolling out at theaters because um, it's really the kind of film you can't fully appreciate at home. Yeah. Although, uh, Jim, I'm sure there's something really cool about you having seen it on VHS yeah, over and over on VHS <laughs> since VHS is such a you know key element of the plot. Sure. Um, but anyway, seeing it on a screen, you know, the, the whole long segment when Bo Pullman gradually disappears down that dark hallway. When you see it on the big screen, it's just like awe inspiring. Oh, when you when you see it at home, it's just like, oh, well, that's a really dark hallway. <laughs> I, I do think rewatching this the other day was the first time, I think was the first time I ever saw it not on VHS. And there was a lot of stuff that I've never seen before. There's mm. there's a lot of uh, information. I mean, literally, there. you just are seeing the whole image as opposed to yeah. the, like the cropped VHS. Version. Yeah, I'm sure it was pan and scan, right? I'm sure it was yeah, like yeah, I'm absolutely. sure I was seeing a, half of the frame most of the time. Probably that's probably why I was so struck by those framings where things are on the very edges, right? Because probably yeah. what all the times I've watched this, I bet I never saw that. I bet I just saw one of the two edge elements, and then and then the other side <laughs> of the frame was dark. It would be pretty fabulous though if they just kept the empty middle. Yeah, yeah. Like if they just didn't scan, they or if they didn't leave scan, out Bill they just cut. Yeah. <laughs> they just just center frame. I actually the first time I saw Lost Highway, I I mean I I couldn't agree with you more, Rob, about Lost Highway and seeing it on a big screen, but I also tend to feel that way about everything. Practically practically any film that's worth watching. Sure. Um although I will I will say to you know all, all apologies to to David, but I did do most of my rewatching for this episode on a phone. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. Because Oof. I have, <laughs> I, oh, he'd I have be small so children and I, and I didn't want those images up really big anywhere. I needed to, somewhere I could watch it like furtively and bits and pieces. Right. You should have uh, showed them just like four second clips so that in 20 years they'll be like, I have this thing in my memory. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'll, I, I'll do a special cut for them where I go through and cut, out, cut together all of the Lynch images that don't have explicit violence in them. Yeah. And then I'll just play nice that on a loop. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I first saw Lost Highway, actually, it, I, I didn't see it when it came out, um, but I had an awareness of it because actually, I don't know if, if this was true for either of you, but where I was, the soundtrack was a big deal. Yeah, uh, so it was like a big, big deal, deal soundtrack album, and it was right in that wake of Pulp Fiction, and sure. I forget which other things, but like soundtrack albums. Oh, because it's all Trent Reznor, right? Well, there's yeah, like Trent Reznor, Trent. there's Rammstein, there's uh, yeah, there's Smashing Pumpkins on yeah, there. Yeah, there's yeah. some but there's David Bowie, there's Badalamenti, of course. Chef it Christ. is a really fantastic. Yeah. But you well, know, the, the there's soundtrack that for Wild at Heart of... is amazing too. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, the, the Badalamenti soundtrack for Wild at Heart's great. But in terms of, I was in high school, and sure. people and you who needed never... more Rammstein. Well, it's just people who would never watch a David Lynch film were sharing this soundtrack around. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Right? Like, that was just, it, it was just, like, ambiently around hearing this soundtrack to this film that I wouldn't see for years to come. Um, I just remember the, the one that everybody really loved uh, was that great Lou Reed cover of Magic Moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah it was just, like, moment. all stripped down and, and spare. But, um, 
That was Barry's idea, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Barry shared that song to Lynch when they were working on the screenplay, and he loved it, so he put used it. That's so funny. Well, one thing that Barry and I have talked about is um, when you have when you're collaborating with another person that way, as as Barry and and David Lynch did. Um, it's not helpful to say this idea came from me and this idea came from me because it really becomes our idea after a certain point. And um, speaking about my own film, um, I was given a really great gift um, because once Barry was on board with making the film, he just let me make the film. He didn't try to like micromanage it or say, you know, you really need to do it this way, or I don't want you to do, put this in the movie. In fact, um, you know, I was just incredibly blessed because uh, very early on in the film, uh, Barry gave me a call one day and he was like, you know, we should get Willem Dafoe to read some stories for the movie. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we should. <laughs> <Absolutely."> yes. <laughs> And so I'm trying to wrap my head around that. And then he calls me back a couple days later and he's like, you know, let's get Matt Dillon to read some stories as well. (laughs) So, you know, he directly connected me with both actors. That's amazing. And that never would have happened if Barry hadn't uh, just like made that happen. So there was a really intense weekend where I flew out to New York, just me and my little digital recorder (laughs) and a lavalier mic. And I recorded both of the actors basically in their apartments. Wow. Um, just reading these stories, uh, they're both very close to Barry and his work. So they totally are on his frequency. I mean, it was just magical to see them, you know, bring these stories to life with very little direction from me. That's really nice. I like to imagine that that mode of recording them too, like the intimacy of it carries yeah. through into the film. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have, I have no proof that there's actual causation there, but certainly I felt when they were reading it, um, their, their close feeling for the words they were reading and the, I mean, not to keep reusing the word, but the intimacy with which the film brings their voice in connect into contact with the text and with the pictures. Um, and that is nice to hear that it was just, you know, you and them sitting in their apartments, just experiencing that together. Yeah. It's really yeah. lovely. Well, a bit of trivia here. Um, I recorded uh, Willem Dafoe in his bathroom. <laughs> that was the best room to use acoustically. <laughs> So it was literally, I mean, what a picture. Willem Dafoe is sitting on the edge of his bathtub recording stories for my movie, and I'm like perched on this little stool on the other side of the room. But yeah, there was that just sort of relaxed intimacy when we were recording, which just, you know, it's a a feeling you can't get if you're in a recording studio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You just feel relaxed and uh, it it really comes through in the film, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you have like a vocal booth and an engineer, you know, everyone's like a little bit. Oh, I need to. It's it's just I'm not relaxed. Yeah, you just you said yeah. it already. But it, and it is it really comes across how it feels. Jim, do you, it feels do you like they're relaxed. Reading. I think it's a little relaxed. I would say if yeah. I had to pick a word, relaxed. Um, oh. th- th- yeah, they they feel like they're reading at home to themselves. 
I also was, I, yeah. I, this is no disrespect to Matt Dillon. He's not an actor I ever think of. If I'm thinking, if I was going to list 20 actors, one of them wouldn't be Matt Dillon. Um, but he is kind of a weird dude. Whenever he shows up in things, I'm a little delighted by it. And it was every time his voice comes on, I was like, oh, right, Matt Dillon's voice. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidentally, he was like getting over a bad cold oh, really? <laughs> when we when we recorded his stuff. Which ended up being wonderful because he had this sort of gravel in his throat that was so perfect for the stories. Yeah, I think that's every time he starts, it's like really, it it feels strikingly appropriate for the stuff he's saying. Is you know that 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 the story towards the end of the movie where he's talking about a guy who does a shot of wild turkey and then walks out into the blizzard and gets hit by a bus. You know, he had the perfect tone in his voice for that story. (laughs) Well, that sounds it, like a Matt Dillon character. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. Film, right? <laughs> and I, you know, I have to thank Matt because he was the one who led me to Lily Taylor. Oh, sure. Uh, I knew that there needed to be a female narrator yeah. because um, Roy's mother is a very important character in the stories, and there's lots of other female characters who are important. And I really wanted Lily because she was born in Glencoe, Illinois, okay. mm. and she has this wonderful Illinois accent in her voice, which is perfect. But at the same time, I didn't have a way of getting in touch with her. Um, however, I realized that Matt Dillon and Lily Taylor had done this film together called Factotum, okay. the Charles Bukowski yes. film. Yeah. So I suggested that to Matt, and he was like, oh, that's a great idea. So he was able to connect me directly to Lily, who was totally on board with it. So that's amazing. again, as a filmmaker, you just have to like take these lucky breaks and, and maximize them. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expose my ignorance in the, for the sake of asking a question to then lead to maybe a thought. Who's Matt uh, Dillon? <laughs> where, yes, who is this you know, Matt Dillon? Where is Factotum set? Because I can't remember for Bukowski. Is that New York or is that another Chicago film? You know, I honestly can't remember. I thought it was the Pacific Northwest. That could be New Jersey. I, yeah, again, like I, I said, exposing my ignorance. I don't know. Um, I think it might be New Jersey, but I, okay. I can't honestly remember. Well, you know, New Jersey's basically Chicago if you're thinking about it from an East Coast, West Coast perspective, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Um, we, we can make that work. I, I'm just reaching for, for this... Um, Something about the Chicagoness of your film, yeah, and of of Gifford and of I mean, like you said, Lily Taylor has that Illinois aspect to it. When I think of her, I I often think of um, because I'm not a highly cultured individual. I I think of her role in High Fidelity, oh sure, uh, mm-hmm. which is a very Chicago film with John Cusack, another Chicago guy, um, and so. And there was something about your film, actually, that reminded me very much, uh, maybe it was simply in the, the animations and how precise the line drawings were, but how loosely they moved around, um, if that tracks. That reminded me of um, uh, a graphic novel, actually. Uh, Chris wears Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest boy oh. in the world. Oh which my is... god, that's such a compliment! Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's just another very. Um, I mean, maybe it was just the the resonant uh, sort of melancholy and joy and Chicagoness of it, and as I said, the this relationship to line drawing and color and 
to time passing in Chicago, but I, I found myself thinking about it while I was watching, and there's, I, I have no actual formed thesis about this, but there, there's just something about Chicago not being LA or New York, and it's always being defined in the negative, and it's always nice to see something like your film that defines it more on its own terms. Um, because it does, I, I know, in my life, Chicago always comes up, and I, I in terms of it's like music the I'm, third I'm listening to, but, but it always is this, it's this place where I've actually, I'm just getting, you know, getting more personal about it, like, I've never been, and I've always been convinced since I was a teenager that I should go there, yeah. and I don't know, I, I don't know why I never got around to going there, and, you know, maybe someday I will, but it was always, to me, it was the place where all of these bands that I loved were from, sure. that all of this music I was interested in, it was this almost mythical space that I didn't have a familiarity with. Um, and so I, I just always appreciate really delving into it, not just as the, as like the third option of cities, but as its own beast. There's a beautiful, and by the way, uh, standing invitation to come visit Chicago, because <laughs> you really should check it out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, there's a beautiful Wait, and Rob, that extends to the whole audience listening mm-hmm. as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, they can all fit in my spare bedroom, sure. Great, perfect. Why not? Um, I mean, in sad honesty, probably the case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, there's, a, there's this beautiful paradox to Chicago, which I hope uh, I captured at least a little bit in my film, which is there is this cynical kind of attitude but there's also a real honesty and a down-to-earthness. Um, so you can um, you can love the city, but you can also be deeply disappointed in it at the same time. <laughs> I, that does definitely yeah. come across in the film. And I, and I, I feel <laughs> yeah. like, um, you know... As far as the the world of the of the film, the world of the fifties, where uh, Barry grew up and Roy in the stories is growing up, it's a city that's renowned for its corruption. Sure. It's a city um, renowned for its brutality and crime, sure. and yet at the same time, it's a city of little neighborhoods. It's mm-hmm. a city where kids play baseball in the alley. And you can ride the train around the city all day long and your parents aren't really going to be worried that you're going to like get into trouble. And so how, how do those two things, you know, simultaneously exist in one place? Um, that's, that's the, the beauty of, of partially why I love Chicago. And I think, you know, as far as that crime background, uh, Barry's father was involved in organized crime. Yeah. And certainly the character of Mr. Eddie and Mr. Santos from Weather yeah. Hard and Lost Highway. I mean, those are straight out of uh, people that uh, associates of Barry's father. I'm sure that a lot of his childhood memories of meeting those kinds of people went directly into those works. And it is it's just in in Roy's world, the, the film, it is you do get that really beautiful because if I'm correct, all the stories about Roy, he is mid-teens or younger, right? Or at least all the ones we hear in the film. Yeah, basically from the age of five to the age of, like, 18. Yeah. 
Um, and so he's very much immersed in in the baseball end of that world you just described, right? He's like walking through parks and and smooching girls and uh, <laughs> and h- hanging out on the train and and t- t- and sitting in a cab while his mom goes into a business, right? Um, doing it's things. It's gotta be Wrigley's. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we have this backdrop of his dad, who like it's endearingly mysterious his connections with with the organized crime world right he he has a pharmacy uh he's he's dealing in alcohol well it's not legal and 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 has connections um and it and it sort of it, it you know we see it dabbling through the background and it is it's really it is a really beautiful portrait of that sort of dichotomy of like there is something dark and nefarious happening and like probably his dad has seen some stuff um, but his life as a young man is just sort of optimistic and beautiful. Getting back to the the notion of personal responsibility, yeah. um, one of the things Barry talks about in the film is that he knew as much as he loved Chicago, he knew he had to leave there. He knew he had to create his own life. He needed to get away from the bad decisions that his parents had made and his you know the people around him has made and sort of become his own person. He wasn't going to be a victim like his mother was. Sure. Um, and I feel like in Wild at Heart, Sailor and Lula are trying to do that too. They're trying to get away from the mess that their parents have made of their lives, yeah. basically. Because yeah, Sailor sort of comes across, at least in the film, like like he's like a bad boy, right? He did a murder. But it's all just completely in reaction to basically to Lula's mother and stuff she has thrown at him specifically. Yeah. Well, and, and in your characterization of, of, you know, Gifford's father, may he may have seen some shit. Like, that's that's a core element of the plot yeah. of Wild at Heart, right? It's that Sailor saw some shit. It's not that he did some right. shit, it's that he saw some he was shit. Near it. And he, it's needing to get away from that. Yeah. Of course, it feels worth noting that the way they're getting away from it, they're heading for Los Angeles, right? <laughs> they're heading for Hollywood. They're heading for Oz. Yeah. Like, the, it keeps coming back to that. The escape may only be a dream, yeah. but in these films, dreams are reality and vice versa. And so, therefore, escape is possible, whether it's in your head or not, it's still right. possible. Yeah. Whereas in Lost Highway, there is no escape because when you're on a mo- yeah. when you're on a, a Mobius strip like that, you get to the end and you're at the beginning again. Yeah, you're just that's, doomed that's to repeat nightmare. it forever, right? When I I feel like it it does dovetail. This is something that I I would love to know Gifford's relationship to this. He may have absolutely zero relationship to it, which would be interesting. But um, Lynch's spiritual side and his oh, sure. involvement in transcendental meditation and the way his films have developed as he has felt, I think, more and more comfortable going to that well of dreams and meditation uh, for his creative inspiration. Um, I, I know that part of it... Uh, Part of the root of transcendental meditation and part of the root of some of Lynch's beliefs um, have very much to do with the sort of uh, quasi-Buddhist, quasi-Gnostic idea that the world we're living in is uh, fiction already, right? That we, we're not accessing the real world. Um, we are interpreting a fictional presentation of it. Uh, and, and various belief systems have different sources for that that fantasy world that we're living in, but we're not engaging in reality. Reality is somewhere else that we can't actually access, but the most we can do is uh, interpret what's around us as best that we can and reach out 
mentally, spiritually to one another. Um, and it's something that starts showing up uh, just to, to complete the chronological thrust of post-Gifford Lynch in Twin Peaks The Return, mm. uh, where, where that makes... That, that series, or I almost called it a film, it basically is just a, you know, a multi-part film. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it makes it almost explicit in the text that the reality the characters are living in is somebody's dream. Lynch himself is in there saying, like, I had another Monica Bellucci dream, and she told me that life is a dream. <laughs> um, but what does it mean? And by the end of that series... The main characters have literally been transposed into other characters. Yeah. Everybody's been switched around because all of these things that we think of as reality, that we think of as ourselves, mm. they're all epiphenomenal. They're all the outsides that are shiftable and changeable based on your interpretations of them, based on your subjective pre you know, presentation and, and view of it. And that the core reality is somewhere else and we're shifting around on top of it. You know, it's, it's my assertion that the final scream from Twin Peaks, The Return, when Carrie slash Laura, you know, screams and the universe seems to explode. I mean, that's straight out of the mm -hmm. end of Lost Highway, in my opinion. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. No, I mean, they're, they're, the thread is absolutely there. And that, the more I've thought about it since this, was, this pairing was suggested, the more I felt like this, these two films are... <laughs> both the the chronological epicenter going you know out from the the center back and forward in Lynch's work but also kind of the key to how his work has developed since then I think that's part partly why Barry and, and Lynch make such good collaborators because Lynch does have that spiritual almost mystical side and at least with me personally Barry's been very cagey about his own spiritual beliefs but he's much more about the practical. And I think for him, yeah. for him, it really boils down to three things, which is one, you need to take responsibility for your own life. And if you're a victim, it's only because you see yourself as a victim. Two, you need to have a kindness in your dealings with others because um, the only way you, the only way that you succeed in life is by others helping you. And therefore you need to help other people. And three, and this is the idea, this is where Lynch and, and Barry are totally on the same wavelength. You have to honor the idea. When an idea sure. comes to you and it manifests itself to you, you are under an obligation to fix that idea, to honor that idea and take it wherever it needs to go. And so that's how you get a beautiful film like Lost Highway. It's all because they were just going wherever this, you know, wherever these ideas took them. I love that. Yeah. I not to not to invent a whole new conversation. But <laughs> uh uh I'm being semi facetious there. But it does it does in some ways sort of feel like Gifford's sort of it, it feels like he has a sort of relatively pragmatic worldview. I think there's a philosophical implication to pragmatic, which I don't know or or potentially mean. But just it it's a very sort of it feels very like fingers in the dirt, you know, mm -hmm. you're living your life and you're in it which I think has a direct parallel to the idea of the the sort of in-the-pocket rhythm section of the, of this jazz band, right? Whereas Lynch's, <laughs> Lynch's ontological meanderings are much more the, like, screamy saxophone, right? That when, when I, I think on both of these films, it feels like they have this, like, 
Gifford is laying down sort of a steady heartbeat uh, and and Lynch is like on top of them. Oh, yeah, it's a it's it's a tension as well as a compliment. You know, those two things complement each other in a way that also generates tension. And it's just a beautiful thing. Yes, absolutely. What a good way to put it. I think with that, let's 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 ride this back into the corral. (laughs) So uh, typically on an episode of Split Picks, at the end of our our deliberation, uh, Craig would ask you uh, both if you want to stick with the film, stick with the one that brung you, or if you want to s- switch partners and 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 say that the other film is now uh, th- the winner in your eyes. <laughs> um, I'm I'm gonna posit that the uh, that the real winner of this episode is Roy's World, the Barry Gifford story. Um, but if you guys, <laughs> oh, if that's an option, I'm switching to that for sure. <laughs> but if you guys well, want to, thank you both. Yeah, um, it's been it's been a real delight having this conversation with you, Rob. Um, it's you know, I just have to say that if anyone is truly a fan of Lynch, you clearly need to see my film again and again <laughs> and again until oh, yeah. you understand every word, and then you'll know. Yeah. What Wild at Heart and Lost it's, Highway were. It's really the key to unlocking the Lynch filmography. I think that's what we've <laughs> yeah, come to I, today. I think the the best strategy would be to go and see a matinee of Roy's World. And then as soon as it's over, you should go to the box office and buy a ticket for the next <laughs> yeah. showing. And then probably go back uh, over and then the go weekend. Home, yeah. Let it let it yeah, let it marinate for a little bit and then come back over the weekend. And then maybe eventually you could have somebody dub it to VHS and hide it in a <laughs> yeah, store. Yeah. And you could well, find when, it. There. Rob, uh, if you when, do a pan and scan, I'll buy a copy. <laughs> when uh, when Roy's World screens at the Hollywood Theater in Portland on June 9th. You can actually go, I believe it's screening at 2.30. You can go see Roy's World, and then you can go directly to a screening of Lost Highway. And I think that would be a beautiful... That sounds... Wait, can I challenge you somewhat? It can't be on June 9th, can it? I'm sorry, July 9th. July 9th. (laughs) Um, So this July 9th, 2022. Thank you for correcting me. (laughs) (laughs) Go watch the two of them right in a row. And is is there a place, Rob, where people could find potential future screenings or more information about your film or perhaps a way to watch it? Yes, please go to roysworldfilm.com. Roysworldfilm.com. You can get all the latest news and also sign up to subscribe to news. We are hopefully going to have some more screenings coming up. It's going to screen in Chicago again pretty soon. We're working on an L.A. screening, which will be really exciting. And also, um, we are going to be releasing a soundtrack album of the original jazz that's in the film. And that's going to be on vinyl. And uh, barring production delays, that should be coming out next spring, early next spring. That's great. I hope hope it becomes a big hit in high schools where people haven't even seen the film yet. They'll pass it around. Um, Rob, are you on the on the social medias? Do you want uh, people to follow you on the Twitter or other places? Or yep, follow me at uh, I believe it's Roy's World Film on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram as you guessed it, Roy's World Film. <laughs> so just just Google Roy's, Roy's World, World Film, and I think you'll anywhere you'll find it's me. It's gotta be Roy's World Film. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks thanks again for having me on and, and talking about these awesome movies, which have meant so much to me personally. Absolutely. This has been a very delightful conversation uh, and, and enlightening uh, for at least me and hopefully six people who listen. 
Um, not that I'm saying our audience is six, you know, but some of them are, are just not going to get it until they watch the movie. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, no, Rob, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. And, um, you know, turn down your guest bedroom. We're yeah. on our way. I'll be there in <laughs> two right. days. I'm pulling out the futon right now. Perfect. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone who listened uh, and and subscribes and checks out all the Split Tooth Media uh, product. <laughs> And, and buys buys the t-shirts <laughs> and has the knuckle tattoos. Uh, we love you. Everybody who's, who split their yeah, teeth with crack us. Crack your teeth. Crack your teeth together. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. I could talk to you guys all day, but I have to go take care of some preschoolers. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them Lost Highway. So 